We've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and um, the beginning of it sounds like Paul is running around a room, and there's people standing around with these toxic cocktails, and Paul is knocking the glasses out of their hands, smashing them on the floor, and saying, don't drink it, it'll kill you! Because Paul is preaching 200 proof grace in Christ. And the false teachers came in and they said, you know what, we should probably mix salvation with one part law, one part gospel. And Paul said, now that's a toxic message. It's not one part Christ's work, one part your work that makes you okay with God. It's all Christ or it's none of him at all. To the degree that we try and balance out the radicality of God's grace is the degree that we erase it all together. That's Galatians 1 and 2. And so it, it sounds this way as Paul is battling this false gospel, which in the ancient world, as we've been discussing, was pretty easy to embrace because the ancient Greco-Roman world was an honor-shame culture. And so when you hear you need to contribute something and you've been raised in an idea of virtue and valor and performance, that makes a lot of sense. So the false gospel is actually easy for them to embrace and the, the pure and true gospel of Christ alone was difficult to accept. And today, we live in a reciprocal nature, an economy of buying and selling. There's no free lunches. So for us, hearing the false gospel is also really easy to accept. It's easy to embrace. So we're coming in on the heels of this, and we're about to read Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 16, and we're going to read to chapter 3, verse 14 this morning. And what we want to uh, pick up on is this theme... Paul's been dealing with, saying that the core of Christianity is trusting, not doing. The core. The core of Christianity is substitution, not contribution. The core of Christianity is trusting God for salvation, not doing the right things to merit your own salvation. And we pick it up starting in chapter 2 in verse 16. Now we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. And I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, Then Christ died for no purpose. Oh foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain... Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and also works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God 
and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. For it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For if righteousness, for it, the righteousness, sh- the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to us, the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word. And here's today's sermon in a sentence. We began by faith, not works. We are reformed by faith, not works. And we live by faith, not works. That's what this text is getting at. This is what Paul is wanting to take like a jackhammer to that, to, to, to that cement that is cementing into Galatia, this false gospel. He's saying, I've got to break this whole thing up. We began by faith, not works. We are reformed by faith, not works, and we live by faith, not works. So that's really what we're going to examine this morning from this, this uh, portion of the letter. So let's begin uh, with verse 16. We begin by faith, not works. What does this mean? He gives us this phrase, justified by faith. And then he says, by the works of the law, nobody's going to be justified. Because who could possibly do enough? Did you notice that I paused when I, when I read that at that point? Because you have to do all of the law. If you miss a part of it, it's, it's, it's null and void. Even if we look at our lives today and we look in the mirror and we say, you know what, I seem to be squeaky clean sanctified. Even if that were true to the degree that there was 100%, 100% purity in our hearts, which we know that there isn't. But even if, if for some reason we, we would believe that that were true in that, in, in that moment, we still have this thing called our past. See, what the, what the law requires is perfection. Not perfection today, not perfection this afternoon. Not perfection tomorrow. Like our whole lives. It's a 24-7 requirement. Which is why in the old covenant they were constantly doing the animal sacrifice thing because of course nobody could keep it. Because you can't. And the moment that you went through all of the purification and the cleansing process and the moment that your sins were atoned for you had to start the whole process again. And so nobody could, be, nobody could keep the law. So Paul comes at it and he says you could never do enough. Christ is enough. And we're in him. And that does something in the heart of the church. That makes us want to live in a completely different way. We've been justified. So this word justified, it's a legal term. It's talking about being acquitted. It's talking about, Paul uses it, you've been justified. You've been found not guilty. Now we know that the day-to-day reality is that we are guilty. But our status is that we are not guilty. That we've been We've been justified. In other words, church, I have good news for you. Such good news this morning. We all know we are made of dirt. 
We all know that one day we were returning there. Here we are in the season of Lent where they, it begins with Ash Wednesday that historically in church tradition it was used to remind everybody from dust to dust and ashes to ashes we're going, where we, we're going back to where we began. We all know this is true. We know that Judgment Day is coming. But here's the good news for you. United to Christ, Judgment Day already happened. That's what the cross is, church. There's not a pending judgment day waiting. I mean, judgment day is coming, but for you, judgment day already happened. Your judge is your justifier. He didn't reserve some judgment for you. He didn't reserve some wrath. He didn't pour some of it out on Christ and then reserve some of it for you on your really bad days to pour out on you. That's not the God that we serve. He's not schizophrenic. He's not confused. He's just. So he poured all of his wrath on Christ so that you and I will only know all of his grace and his mercy. For you and I, united to Christ by faith and grace alone, judgment day happened. We've been justified. This is the good news. Jesus Christ is righteous in his nature. We are declared righteous by faith. It's a declaration. We're standing in a borrowed holiness. We're standing in a borrowed righteousness. It's glorious and it's amazing. But the religious concern, then in Galatia and today, the religious concern is, whoa, that sounds pretty scandalous. And if you tell the church their judgment day already happened, well, then they'll just live like they'll just live indifferent to God, won't they? They'll just they they'll be lazy. If you tell the Galatians that Christ did it all, they're just going to live their own way. They're not going to live for the glory of God. <clears throat> if I tell KW Redeemer on Sunday morning that Christ has done it all, aren't you going, isn't that, what's that going to produce in you? Should you plug the ears of your children who are in here, who are hearing this? So don't tell my kids judgment day already happened because where's, where's the bite you know, to get them to really want to live for God tomorrow? See, that was the religious concern back then. That's the religious concern today because the Christ alone gospel is always being bad business for people who are committed to control. Because if you are committed to control, the only way to maintain that control is to maintain a degree of superiority and dependency. And if you read through all the New Testament letters, which I'm not going to take the time to expound, kind of take you through the thread, but if you read through them, what you're going to find is these religious, Paul, Paul used the term, he kind of teased them in the Greek, super apostles, you know, the uber apostles, the, these super religious guys, when the, their concern was their own piety and, their, and the dependency that people had on them. And if you do away with this whole religious, uh, if you do away with the old covenant and all of the, the old covenant laws, then where does that leave me and your need for me? I mean, if Christ is the high priest, what does that mean for me? See, that's, it, that, it was a threat to the religious control in the past. And it's a threat to religious control today. Because the truth is, and we read it, we read it and we're going to expound on it this morning, is that that power of that saving grace, that we began by his grace and not by works, it's actually propelling something in you, church, that you will begin to live out of that grace. The grace that rescued you, you begin to live out of it. More and more and more living out of it. Training your children and teaching your children more and more to rest in it because in the rest is the power to live out of it. That's where Paul's taking this. 
And so it's amazing as he uh, addresses this religious concern. And he does it in verse 18. If you look down at verse 18, that's where Paul already knows the argument. The argument is, if you preach grace, people are going to run off and they're going to be lazy and they're going to sin. And Paul says, that's ridiculous. And that's why in verse 18 he says, listen, if I rebuild what I tore down, I'm proving that I'm a transgressor. In other words, the person who claims with their lips that they've placed their faith in Christ, but then with their life, they live with a constant, perpetual, chronic indifference to Christ, has not grasped the gospel. That's what he's saying. If I rebuild what I tore down, and I just live indifferent to this grace that I'm saying is so amazing, I haven't grasped the grace that I'm saying is so amazing. Because that rescuing grace does have that reforming trajectory. So that's why he gives us this in verse 18. It produces this grace, this increasing loyalty to Christ, and not this license to live indifferent uh, from him. And so that's why in verse 19, Paul goes on to say, I died to the law as a means of salvation. I died to it as a means of salvation. Because I know that Christ had to do everything, because I have such a high view of the law, I realize I can't keep it. So I have to say Christ alone. But if I have a very low view of the law, then I think I can keep it. So of course it's what Christ did, plus I'll top up what Jesus did. Because maybe what Jesus did needed, needs topping up by my good works. What, are you kidding me? You're going to put the, on the one hand, you're going to put the crucifixion of Christ, and on the other hand, you're going to put walking old ladies across the street. And i uh, what? What are we doing? What am I possibly doing this week? What are you possibly doing this week that's adding to what Christ did for us? There's nothing that we've done. So that's why Paul says, listen, in verse 19, he goes, we died to that system. It's over. And now we're being propelled by something new and something beautiful, this grace of Christ. And so the reason why that's so radical is because every other religious system, if you consider them, the guru comes to teach the way to salvation, whereas Christ comes to be our way of salvation. The guru comes and says, if you do these things, you will merit favor with the gods. And Christ comes and says, I am the way that will merit your favor with God. And so in verse 20, Paul goes on and he says this iconic phrase. If you're newer to church, you might not have heard this before. But for those of you who have been in church for a while, you know it's a familiar phrase. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Right? That's a phrase that if you've been in church, you hear that a lot. But maybe you're newer to the Bible and you haven't heard that. You're saying, what is Paul really saying there? The reason why Paul goes and he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives. And then it begs the question, then where am I? You know, what am I doing? <clears throat> the reason why Paul uses that, that phrase is it's a simultaneous reminder for Paul. Uh, it's this simultaneous reminder that because of what Christ did, he's living, he's living a new life now. See, the old system of law was very much, if you keep the law, then it will be well with you. And the purpose of it being structured that way was because it kept driving people to repentance because they couldn't actually keep it. If you do this, right, that's Leviticus 18.5, the, the height of the, do this and live, right? Deuteronomy 30.19, choose life. What does Israel do? They go, we will. Chapter 31, no, you won't. Next 400 years, no, they didn't. Right, they couldn't keep it. So Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, because the life that I'm now living in the flesh, I'm actually living to the glory, uh, I'm, I'm living in faith of the Son of God is because I've died to this system of, if I do this, then God might accept me. Because the religious, the religious leaders showed back up in Galatia, and they were saying, if you do this, 
God will accept you. And Paul says, no. It's actually because Christ did everything that therefore I want to, my heart wants to, and I am going to live to the glory of my Savior. It's not if then. It's because he did this. Therefore, I'm going to live to his glory. And even when I sin, and even when I fall, and even when I struggle, which Paul did, and, he get, and we're going to get to it in a couple of weeks because he explains that. Paul's like, I'm still going to get up in the grace of Christ, and I'm going to be thankful for the grace of my Savior. Because the grace of God, it, this is a simultaneous statement that is saying, it is reminding me that my, my righteousness in God is not based upon my merit. Therefore, God's grace is empowering me to stand strong, and God gra- God's grace covers me when I fall flat. There's a great freedom there. If you think God's grace is only there for you when you're standing strong, you're going to feel a lot of guilt, a lot of condemnation every time you fall flat. But if you know that God's grace is empowering you to stand strong, and God's grace is there covering you when you fall flat, you are now living a life of freedom. You're now living a life free from this old system of of, uh, your obedience earning God's acceptance, which was, of course, the problem that Paul was dealing with. So that's, why it's so that's why it's so profound that he explains it <clears throat> this way. So those two verses, verse 20 and 21, if you look down at it, in, in English it's two sentences. They, we put a period there and we, because in English it, it reads better. <coughs> in Greek it's one sentence. It's one long sentence. That's important. I'm not giving you arbitrary Greek lessons for no reason. It's one sentence because it's one thought. It's got to be taken together. If you break verse 20 and 20 up, if you take part of it, it sounds like well, it's all up to you, Jesus. It's just the Jesus take the wheel of faith. I just sit back here. I don't do anything. And Jesus does all of it. That's what it sounds like if you only take one part of the verse. And if you only take the other part of the verse, then it's like, well, it's all up to me. The life that I now live, I live to the, okay, so roll those sleeves up. It's up. That's why it's one sentence. It's one thought. It's this life that I'm now living. I'm living in the freedom of what Christ has done for me. It, it's, it's chains falling off, church. It's prison doors swinging open. It's eyes opening, it's hearts opening, it's having your day-to-day temporal reality reframed by eternity. It's your marriage and your kids and going to work and dealing with what you're dealing with and dealing with what you're dealing with emotionally or physically in your body and really kind of viewing all of life with a completely different lens to be saying, you know what, it's no longer me that's living now that's like looking at every arbitrary thing that's happening in my world and trying to filter it through uh, a tit-for-tat spiritual system. Maybe I'm going through these things because I, you know, if I could just pull the right levers, if I could just push the right buttons, if I could just crack the code, this wouldn't, maybe this wouldn't be this way. Maybe if I could, maybe if I could somehow leverage God. It, it erases all of that. And it just brings us into this freedom of God's grace. Of recognizing, you know what? I'm now living to the glory of the one who saved me. He's with me. I began, I, I began in faith. I'm going to continue in faith. He's going to continually reform and renew me by his great faith. So let's continue and see how this, how this plays out. In verse 21, uh, he says, you know, if, if we gained righteousness through our work, or we had to contribute to Christ's work, then Christ died, Christ died for nothing. And he says, I'm not going to nullify the grace of God. So that's why Paul makes such a big, big deal about this. I'll explain it this way. A couple of years ago, when, not, when Isaiah was a little guy, he played football for a few years, and I coached his football team here in Waterloo, the Waterloo Warhawks. 
Such a good time. It was fantastic. And we had the opportunity to play in the Rogers Center on the field in, before one of the Argos games started. So if you've ever been to Argos game, you know, they're not massive, massive crowds, but there's like, there'd be like 30,000, 25,000, 30,000 people at an Argos game. So before the game, there's probably 10,000 people in there-ish as the game is filling up. And uh, so that's when the kids get to play in front of about 10,000 people, which is pretty awesome when you're, when you're a little guy. And uh, so we actually got there, hit traffic, and I'm freaking out because I'm like, if I miss this, this is going to be terrible. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for my son. So I'm freaking out. I, I may or may not have broken the speed limit. Okay, I broke it. I broke the speed limit. I'm like, I got to get there. This is going to be horrible if we miss this. We get to the, the Rogers Center, and we're running up to the gate where we're supposed to go. Isaiah is in full football uniform. He's got his helmet on. We're in the parking lot. He's got it buckled up. His mouth guard is in. You know, it's like, you never know. You might have to knock over a parking attendant on the way to the... Who knows what could happen? So he's so excited about this. And I'm running there. And we get to the gate. And the person at the gate takes one look at us, opens the door and lets us in. And we're running through the tunnel underneath the Rogers Center. And we literally run up, run in and get there. And I see the, the team gathered. And I get there and I'm like, okay, Warhawks, let's go. And I grab all the kids and I run out onto the field. The reason I'm telling you that story is because there's only one reason why that person took one look at my, me and my son and opened the door and led us where nobody else could go. What we were clothed in. That is Genesis to Revelation. That is what Paul is dealing with here. That is the grace of Christ for you. That is the grace of Christ apart from the law. You are clothed in Christ. You are clothed in something. But if you weren't clothed in it, you're on your own. God says, I've given you my grace in Christ. I'm welcoming you in. There is a gracious welcome. There is a welcome that is available for you. No questions asked. They didn't ask me for ID. They didn't ask me for any. They didn't say, hey, did you play football before? What's your record? How many yards per carry did you? Like, like, give me a little performance breakdown. I didn't have to get there and be like, well, actually, I I played football in high school for a couple of years. And then I got a letter from the University of Western. And I was going to go, but then I blew my knee out. You know, that's everybody's story. And, you know, the older you get, the better you were. So I'm going to tell you my version of that. And and here are my rushing yards. and, And then I started coaching. Then nobody's interested in any resumes. There's no resume. It's just, what, look at this guy. You're clothed, in, you're clothed in what you need to be clothed in. Welcome. That's you, church. That's what Paul's dealing with here in Galatia. You don't clothe yourself in your, own, in your own resume. Don't show up and say, well, according to the things. Nobody's interested. It's Christ alone. You and I only have one thing to say on our deathbeds, and it's I'm with him. And that's what Paul's getting at here. And so we begin by faith, not works, but then we're being reformed by faith and not works. So when you move into chapter 3, when Paul says, you foolish Galatians, you know there's that iconic phrase, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? If you're, if you're newer to the church, that phrase of like, Galatia, what are you doing? That's like this iconic phrase in Christianity. And the reason why it's iconic, the reason why it's so, uh, why Paul famously called them fools is because they went from trusting in a person to trusting in their practice. And church, you and I, can, we can do that. We can go from trusting in a person to trusting in our practice. And I want to be very clear so that those of you who... Uh, I don't want anybody to misunderstand what I'm saying. Paul is not against Christian practices. Paul is against trusting in your Christian practices. See, the practice of prayer is beautiful. It's a gift. 
But, but if you trust that your practice of prayer is what's making God accept you, that's toxic. Right? The practice of prayer will nourish your soul. Trusting in how much you pray will shrivel your soul. The practice of reading the scriptures and meditating on them, or for those of you who have children sitting at the dinner table and after, after your meal, or whenever it is that you do it as a family, you know, you gather your kids together and you teach your children the word of God. That's beautiful. That'll nourish them. But if you put all your trust in how well you're doing that, or if you didn't do that, I mean, how much is enough of that? That'll shrivel your soul. See, the good news of the gospel is God's ability to do a gracious and saving work in our kids is greater than our ability to mess it up. If you don't believe me, read the story of Jonah. It's a fantastic tale of a guy that God had no problem getting where he wanted to go, even though he didn't want to be there. God is really great at saving people. It's kind of his jam. And that's what Paul is getting at when he says, who, who, has, who has messed you guys up? You're, you're trusting now in this thing. He says in, in the Greek, you're, you're hoping to be perfected in it or uh, to you know, be, be completed by it. You're not going to be completed by your practice. You weren't saved by a person and now you're being grown by principles. You are saved by a person and you're being grown by a person. The Father, the Son, the Spirit were, were chasing you down their great love and they saved you and they are going to continue to grow you. This is what they're going to do. And so the trust is not in the practices. Those practices are there as these beautiful gifts that nourish us, but that's not what... We don't put our, if you put your trust in there, you're going to have guilt immediately. How much is enough? Right? Then, then the sermon starts to go in another direction. How's your prayer life? How's your walk with God? How much did you read your Bible this week? How much did you pray? Those of you who aren't... Yeah, like that's what, all of a sudden, that's where it goes. How much of that is enough? And I'm going to tell you something. I know that preaching the grace of Christ chronically, like Paul did, is going to produce a desire in you like you've never had in your entire life to enjoy prayer, to enjoy scripture meditation, to sit down with your kids and enjoy showing them the beauty of God's love for them in a way. I know that that's what it propels and what it produces. I know that's what it's produced in my life. I didn't come to an understanding of God's scandalous grace and said, oh, this is so beautiful. I won't share it with Rebecca and Isaiah and Nigel. It's so great. They have no need to know about, you know, it's so beautiful. I'll just never crack a Bible. That's not what grace produces. So Paul says to these Galatians, you began a certain way. Now you're trusting in something else. What are you guys doing? This is going to be toxic. The good news of the gospel is that it is a proclamation. The gospel is not an instruction. God's law does, does instruct us, but you see, it's God's grace that reforms our hearts. So that when God's law says, do this, not that, my heart is saying, I want this, not that. That's what grace does. That's, what, that's, the, where the, that's the trajectory of where the gospel is going. So Paul has to jump into this and say, you guys are getting off track here because you're going to trust in the wrong thing and you're going to get yourself on this treadmill of works righteousness and there's no off button. And then every time you're in a challenge and a trial, every time somebody turns around and you know, makes a decision in your, in your family, if your, your kids go off and, and make poor decisions, if you're trusting in the wrong thing, you're going to be crippled. And you're going to say, what did I do wrong? And I should have done enough and I needed to do more. And if I only prayed more and if I only... How much is enough exactly? 
Now, you've got to put all your chips on Jesus. All of us are parenting on our knees. All of us are in a marriage loving our spouses on our knees, needing the grace of God, approaching all of, our, all of life, uh, trusting in Him, and living in the great freedom that there is in that. Because what it is it, uh, here in this text is Paul is coming against all of our functional saviors. When I say functional savior, we can say theologically or intellectually, Yes, Christ alone, Christ is my Savior. But then functionally, trust in something else to be our Savior. The life we're living, our works, our performance, comfort is our Savior, control is our Savior, approval is our Savior. So then we end up orienting our whole life to to have that. If I don't have control, then I'm not going to be okay. If I don't have approval, I'm not going to be okay. If I I don't have comfort, I'm not going to be okay. So therefore, I have to orient my whole life to get control, approval, comfort. Approval from God, approval from others. I need, to be, I need to control others, and I need to have the affirmation of others so that God will be happy with me. Do you see where it goes? That's, that's how it snowballs. And Paul knows this is where self-righteousness snowballs. So he says, i got to interrupt this. It's by grace alone. It's by what Christ has done alone. Which leads to the final thing, which is that we live by faith, not works. So we begin by faith and not works, and the Spirit is doing a a beautiful renewal in us, so we're being reformed by faith and not works. But now we do live by faith and not works, and Paul Paul illustrates this by contrasting two different types of people. That's why he brings Abraham in there. (coughs) Because you've you've got a person of faith and a person of works. This is what he's trying to contrast. The person of faith and the person of the law. He uses Abraham as the example of the person of faith. That's verses 6 through 9. And when Paul talks about how Abraham came to faith, he uses this phrase. He says, it was accredited to him. So justified is a legal term. And for all of the accountants or bookkeepers in here, accredited is an accounting term. If I credit something to your account, it means it's there because I gave it to you. Oh, Abraham, a great man of faith. Yes, he was. And his faith was there. Because God gave it to him. Grace came to Abraham. Faith came to Abraham. God gave Abraham the faith. And then Abraham believed. So when Paul talks about faith, he uses this phrase, it's accredited. If, I, if you go home and you look in your account and you see that I emailed you $100, because I'm such a nice guy, it's there because I gave it to you. So it is, it is right and good for you to go around, go around rejoicing and saying, I have $100. I have $100. True, you do have $100. That's amazing, right? It's mine. $100 is mine. It is. It is yours. I gave it to you, right? But if you talk about that $100 like you somehow worked for it, you self-generated it, you're like, I knew it. I knew that when I smiled at Paul uh, and I said, hey, uh, I like your hair, <laughs> I knew it. I knew he heard me say that. And I've got this $100. You've, you missed the whole thing. You didn't earn it. You didn't, I accredit it to you. That's, that's the context Paul puts in. He says, that's the man of faith. Living this joyous life. Living as a result of seeing what's been credited to him. But then you've got the, you've got the person of faith. But then you've got the person of law. Which is in verse 10 and 11. Getting back to the original argument. He says, the person of law is under a curse. Because they can't keep it. You put yourself under that system. I mean, how much are you doing really, right? Because then then it becomes a comparison game. 
on all of your spiritual practices, instead of them being gifts that nourish you, they become these guilt-ridden things where you feel like you're either in this fluctuating scale of acceptability before God or spirituality you know, before the people who are kind of sitting around you. And we, we slot each other into these, you know, this scale of if you're better or worse than me or you're cleaner or less clean than me on the basis of all of the spiritual practice. Not that, well, of course we're going to do the spiritual practice because we want to because it nourishes us, but, it put, but the law puts it into this sick category. So Paul says, no, 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 Christ became a curse for you, which is key. It's so important. He became the curse for you. God, God is just. It's not like when you sin this week in thought or word or deed that God goes, oh, I saw that. We're just going to fire a little bit of cursing your way. That's ridiculous. You're not, we're not living in that fragile tit-for-tat, obey me and you're blessed, disobey me and you're cursed. We're not bringing Deuteronomy 30 back, for friends. That had a purpose, and the purpose of that was to show us, you know you need a Savior, right? And so Paul says here, whoa, 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 no. You're people of faith. Don't put yourself back under this other system. That's just, that's just going to be a life of guilt and condemnation. So that's why he uses the phrase, and he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, and he says, the just shall live by faith. Why does he say that? Because when you live by something, it governs everything you do. Right? If, you have a, if you have a company that you work for, that you own, and you've got a mission statement, and you've got a set of core values, that governs everything. Everything, everything flows out of that, and it's defined by it. And if something comes into the business that isn't coherent with the values, it's got to bounce back out. Because you say, that doesn't fit this. We live, we live by this. We do by this. So when Paul says, the just shall live by faith, it means we define ourselves by a cross. We define ourselves by mercy. We define ourselves by God's grace. We live with this simultaneous humility that we didn't earn anything from God. And confidence now, on campus... Because we already have God's approval and love of us. So now we can be very confident on campus and we can engage in all kinds of wonderful discussions from position of confidence because we know God loves us. We're God's kids. In vocation, in recreation. So now you're doing work by faith. You're raising your kids by faith. You are, you are uh, going to school and you're going to your lectures by faith. And you are coaching hockey by faith. And you're playing soccer by faith. And you're going out this afternoon and you're uh, having some food and drink with your family by faith. We're doing it all by faith. It doesn't mean that you do a religious thing. It means that whatever it is that we're up to, we're doing from a position of rest and renewal to the glory of God. That's why in the Reformation, Luther said, the Christian cobbler does not do his duty by putting little crosses on shoes. He does his duty by making good shoes. So that's how you go to work tomorrow, by faith. And you do your business, by faith. And you relate to your staff, by faith. And you relate to your kids, by faith. And you relate to your spouse, by faith. It's not a religious thing. It's a loving thing. It's the love of God and the grace of God forming and reshaping how we relate and what we do and how we approach our vocation and how we bless this city as the people of God in this city by living our lives by faith. If the people of God in the city are living by faith, the city benefits. Because you've got all kinds of loving good works flowing from that freedom. 
All of a sudden, we're free now, looking at the world like this, life isn't actually all there is. What does that free you up to do? That frees up your time. You don't need all of it for yourself. Right? That frees up your, your treasure and your resources. You don't need all of your money for you. You can give it away to the poor. You can, you can help those who are in need. In this community of faith here, as we love and get to know one another, when we hear of needs, we go, oh, you know what, I don't need all of my time. Yeah, I can help you in that way. You know, I don't need all of my time. When I heard about that thing, I can love and serve in that way. I can give in that way. We're free now. And it's beautiful and it's powerful. So Paul says that the just shall live by faith. To live by the law is to trust in your performance. But to live by faith is to trust in Christ's performance. To live by the law is you now have to garner your identity. Through your work, through your kids, through your marriage, through your health. But what happens when the health goes, but you've defined yourself by it? What happens when the beauty fades, but you defined yourself by it? And there's more gray hair and there's more wrinkles. What happens when the health fades? We defined ourselves by being strong and healthy, but now we're tired and we need to take naps. If we're living by faith, we can take a nap by faith. What do I mean by that? I'm not being facetious. I mean without guilt, without feeling like I'm less of a person, without feeling like, you know what? I'm conked out. I'm going to take a nap right now. I'm having an unapologetic nap because this body is tired. It's breaking down. And it's reminding me it's returning to dust. But I'm not worried about that because guess what? This life isn't all there is. I'll see you in 20 minutes after my Pentecostal nap. I was raised Pentecostal. I'm not sassing them. I love the Pentecostals. That's why I said that. So the thing is, we do these things by faith now. But if, our, if we're not living by faith, we're living by the law, then the way that we approach all of life is garnered by having to, to get our own identity out of the things that we're doing. And what happens when those things are taken from us? It's tragic. Because they became foundational, and now the foundation's gone. So he says, no, 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 no. We're living by faith now. If we live by the law, we end up hiding because we think we're worse than everybody. Or we end up swaggering because we think we're better than everybody. But when we live by faith, we're loving, we're serving, we're expressing. By faith, we're united to Christ in death, so we're free from sin. And united to Christ in his life, we are free to live by him. And so we live out our Christian life as we begin our Christian life, by God's grace. Let's pray.